Welcome to the Prague School Podcast with me, Gerald Dalebout, and Shredder Supreme, Morgan Wick. Today, we are breaking down Hemispheres, the sixth studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released in October 1978 by Anthem Records. Morgan, how are you doing today? I am doing well. What is today? Oh, it's a Saturday morning. So it is. But I, have, I, I just I have got small... done watching cartoons and yeah, my Hong children. My children watch cartoons. I've started Saturday morning cartoons for my children. So that's good. But do you? It's kind of weird now though, because you know they have to, they have to like get on YouTube to watch it. Whereas for our generation, it was like you're forced to watch whatever was on. Know, yeah, reboot at nine o'clock a.m. or whatever. But you knew what was, was coming on each hour, so you'd like prep for mm-hmm. it. Um, I have my kids watching. What are they watching right now? Ducktales. The OG Ducktales. Yeah, the OG or the new Ducktales. Ducktales. No, they're both good though. Yeah, OG. Uh, and then they really like it. And then I'm going to try to get them on Darkwing Duck next. That was always my favorite yeah. growing up. No, me too. <laughs> They're all Isn't on Disney weird? Plus, which is nice. But Yeah, it's weird how millennials force their kids to watch all the stuff they watched as kids. Like, I don't remember my dad, like, sitting me down and being like, hey, we're going to watch the Flintstones. This I'm sorry. Or- I think there are some of the, some kid shows, modern kid shows are okay. But the little kid mm-hmm. shows, for the most part, they're pretty terrible these days. <laughs> Well, the thing is, too, is the way they consume media is different. So yeah. they don't watch a show. You know, they're more on YouTube. Like I just looked at the the most highest paid celebrity was Mr. Beast. Oh, yeah. He does all of YouTube. last that's year. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty exceptional. Uh, maybe there's got to be a maybe I read that wrong, but I thought it was something that he's like the highest paid celebrity is a YouTube personality, which is insane. Why do you think I'm putting all my effort into YouTube? I know that's <laughs> for the, right. for the real niche prog rock. I'm going to make millions. No, I just yeah. actually, the channel just got monetized a few days ago. Although this, this will release like months after this happened, but yeah, so far I've made, this is great. I've made 69 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I took that's a screenshot of it because I was like, "That that's hilarious!" Yeah. Wow, that's what a climactic moment. <laughs> that's it. I wanted to just stay there. If I never made any more money on YouTube, it's just sixty nine yeah. cents the whole time. The next increment, it's like sixty nine dollars and six hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, so sixty nine thousand dollars now. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what? Are we, oh funny. yeah, we're talking about no, rush, rush today. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we're we're talking about hemispheres. As I said in the intro, hemispheres, the sixth studio album. By Rush. Yeah. I'm super excited about this because I know we're both big Rush fans. So Yes. No, it, it's weird. Rush. I mean, I don't know how much we want to talk about Rush in general. We both watched Rush live. I've seen um, him twice. Yeah. Um, we, how I saw are we going to pronounce time. Neil Pert's name? Neil, That's what is really important should we go, for this Neil Piert? Piert? Piert. I'm going to super American. Like, Neil Pert. Neil Pert is the greatest drummer <laughs> of Neil our Pert. time. No, R.I.P. Neil Peart. That was really sad. Uh, what? That was like January 2020. It yeah, seems right like before it still all, just happened. Right, right before COVID and all that. I remember that because it was right before I went to Nam two years ago. So that was like a you big deal. You were in Nam. <laughs> in Vietnam. Oh, sorry. No, it's the music. The music. <laughs> yeah. Thing. No, I, I was gonna watch uh, Primus did a tour called uh, Farewell to Kings, and they covered that whole album in yep. honor of Neil Peart. And then um, I didn't get to go watch it. 
which was unfortunate because it got canceled because of COVID. Oh, classic. Um, but man, yeah, I, I'm glad that we got to watch them live. Yes, you know? I'm glad I got to watch amazing. them. You know, before the end, obviously. Yes. Um, I watched him once a few years before, like in 2008 or something. I think I went with you and our drummer friend in like 2010. Yeah. Was that, did they do, was that the moving, that was the moving pictures tour, yeah. right? So, but they did songs off, they did other songs. I don't know that they did anything off hemispheres though. I don't remember. They, they, didn't they do trees. I think they, they ended by doing, I think they ended by doing moving pictures all the way through. I think that was the deal yes. with that. Cause it was like an anniversary tour yeah and there was yeah, this awesome was south park intro for tom sawyer do you remember oh, that yeah yeah that's right <laughs> it was great well that's the thing is in pop culture so when i was in high school i didn't like rush like i remember my initial I'm, i wasn't like a music kind of guy like you are but i just remember i was approaching it more from a cultural perspective and i just remember hearing getty lee's vocals and being really turned off <laughs> and i know a lot of people are like that they're like e like it's it's too high yeah and now it's weird is that i really appreciate it but i always knew that you know all my favorite pop culture things like primus uh south park uh, all really respected rush yeah and then i think they kind of went mainstream with um What's that movie with Paul Rudd and uh, I love you, man. I love you, man. And and the slap of the bass yeah, and yeah, that slap stuff. Of the bass and... It seemed like Rush really like went mainstream, and then they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and and they kind of finally got the appreciation that they always deserved. Yeah, you know? the pop culture thing. Um, so I don't know if you've ever watched The Expanse. I think I've talked to you about it. I have point. not, but yeah, sci-fi show. Well, the main ship in that show that the crew flies is called the Rosinante. Oh, nice. And I was From like, Cygnus. and I was listening to the song. I was like, wait, there's a spaceship in this <laughs> in Cygnus about the Rosinante. And apparently the creators of The Expanse, like that was one of the influences to name it that. And that makes me like that show even more now. <laughs> but also what's weird is Rush named it after uh, Don Quixote. Exactly. Horse. And The Expanse was, it was the similar thing. It was kind of a combo of the two things. But um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, obviously, like, huge band. I mean, so as far as this album goes, as I said, it's a sixth album. Uh, this is kind of what uh, Getty Lee called it, the uh, end of a thing is how he described <laughs> this album. So you have kind of 2112, which was them really moving into some serious prog territory. And then Farewell to Kings, uh, which has Cygnus 1 on it. Yeah. And then this is like the end he hemispheres. And it, and it does have some elements where it like bridges the gap between that sort of early 80s moving pictures era of Rush. But also it, it really um, solid. It's like their most, I don't know, maybe you'd, you'd call it this, their most complex, most like proggy album. Oh, yeah. Right? One, 100%. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I yeah. wanted to talk about this here. Well, also because I think everyone talks about moving pictures, right? I'm sure, I don't know if we do this for a while, we might cover, you know, moving pictures at some point. But, yeah. Um, I think this is a good album because as you mentioned, kind of bridges the gap between that really proggy rush. And this is kind of like the most extreme version of that. But there's also hints of like some of the stuff that's to come in the the keyboards and like even a song like Circumstances, with, which is shorter. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. The, these albums have always been my favorite because I'm a prog guy, right? So I like the big, long, epic songs and, and all that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like they kind of honed it in by this point. Like, I really like 2112 and A Farewell to Kings. I think they're both really good. But I, I like this more. It just feels a little bit more 
uh, like they've kind of figured out that sound, you know, by this point. I also, just from looking at like interviews, it seems like the amount of work they put on this album was like more than any album they, they worked on. Like he, afterwards they took like a six week, like hiatus or something like that because they were so exhausted. Yeah. And I think Neil Pert, he said that like, he spent more time on La Villa Strangiato than he did on the whole fly by night album, like trying to figure that song out. Yeah. That song is, I mean, they're all, they're all crazy, but I, I think it's maybe part of the reason they decided to go more in into the shorter song direction. Um, not that the next albums are simple necessarily, but, um, I feel like they, maybe that got burnt out by the, like, ex, you know, super long, crazy songs at this point and kind of wanted to just write, you know, more bangers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. More bangers. That's how well, they would have described it. Yeah. But permanent waves <laughs> and moving pictures. I mean, those albums are that those have their most famous songs on them. Yeah. Right? So the radio friendly songs, but they're, the, they're not really, but they are by rush standards. They are. I, I guess today I would hear yeah. those hear those songs on the radio quite a bit. Yeah, that yeah. you always hear Tom Sawyer or Limelight, you know, on on the radio. Yeah, so maybe we just talk about the album like generally, and then we'll jump into Cygnus if that's cool. With yeah, you. yeah. Um, so yeah, so this album was recorded at the same place that Farewell to Kings uh, was recorded it's in Wales at Rockfield Studios. I think you have a, a I do picture, have a of, picture that. of that. Yeah. It's basically like a farm. And it was pretty like low key. Like there's a story of Alex Lifeson getting mad that the door wouldn't close correctly. <laughs> so he like, he like fixed it and like hooked up a hydraulic thing to the door or something. Like he went way, way okay. over the top on fixing it. Um, but it's pretty low key, but it's very peaceful. And they liked recording in the UK. Um, so as I said, they spent a lot of time recording there. Uh, the album art, uh, well, the title of the album hemispheres sort of, uh, has this idea of like separation, which shows up, I think in a different way in every song. Um, like the, and we can kind of break down how that shows up as we go. Um, but the cover, it, it, it was done with the longtime rush collaborator, uh, Hugh Syme. Uh, he did the 2112, uh, the, the character, the, you know, the hero man. pressed the naked man pressed against the, the star. And uh, this has that character reprising his role on the left hemisphere, right? I'm not looking at the image right now. It's on now. the right. On the right. Yeah. And then this, the painting, uh, The Son of Man, which uh, by okay. Rene Magritte, I think is how you say the name, which I'm sure people have seen with the apple. I've got it up on the, the screen. So. There you go. Yeah, the apple in front of the, uh, the face is on the other side of the brain. And um, it was just kind of inspired by when Pert was talking about um, Cygnus and he was talking about the Apollinian Dionysian parts of the brain, like reason versus creativity. And so it was uh, based off of that. And that, I think that that's, that kind of brings us to Cygnus X one book two <laughs> hemispheres. Now, have you listened to book one is real question. Oh yeah. No, I, I so it has been a little while. Uh, Cause I kind of prepared for this a few like a, maybe a month ago yeah, and then yeah. we just we just didn't get around to recording it but so i haven't listened to book one in a while um but yeah i don't know what about it what i don't know I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> just testing you know um i i like both of them I'm, i think i prefer this one book two but um yeah. this song this might be the most complex rush song like wow ever i don't know like just from a musical perspective or like maybe like a structural perspective like it like literally goes like there's lots of things that repeat but it kind of goes all over the place um yeah 
I don't know. It's uh, it well, it has like parts, right? Like, yeah, yeah. and they're specifically There's named movements. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and it reprises some of the melodies and stuff from the original. Yeah, a few in there. Yeah, and it, it does a really good job of kind of like bringing themes back and stuff. Now, like, let me grab my guitar. I'll show some of them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I like so Cygnus One. If you don't know the story, is basically uh, this character enters into a black hole. And this is him coming out of the the other side, and he emerges into Olympus, where he witnesses the gods Apollo and Dionysius caught in a struggle between mind and heart. And so, like the ones led by Apollo are logical thinkers, and they're able to make all kinds of great things. And then the Dionysians are like representing love, and they're able to um, you know find relationship. And basically the song is about taking these two halves, these two hemispheres, if you will, and bridging them together uh, uh, to make a sort of unified whole of love and reason. Mm. Yeah, it's good stuff. So Hemispheres starts with what I'm going to call the Hemispheres chord, but it's this chord. It's like a, a bar chord, like an F sharp major bar chord, but you open up the top two strings. So it's like an F sharp seven sus or something like that. But this is a really common prog chord and it really comes from Alex Lifeson. Life. The same chord happens in uh, in Limelight. Limelight. Uh, happens in other songs too. But th And also this particular chord shape actually happens in other songs too. He just kind of moved around. Like you still keep the open strings. Like all those sounds are very kind of Alex Lifeson-esque sounds. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason he's doing that really is to fill up the space because Rush is a three-piece. And one of the things people really like about Rush and one of the things I like about Rush is that they sound like a much larger band, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that. Like each musician has to kind of fill as much space as possible. You know, so you got Giddy Lee playing bass and singing and doing keyboards with his feet. <laughs> and Neil Peart is like, you know, hitting every drum possible and his little uh, glockenspiels and bells and all that. And Alex Lifeson is doing these big <laughs> chords. Uh, and even live, I think Alex plays, or well, they, when they did play live, he played some keyboards with his feet as well. Um, so I didn't know that. Yeah. When, when we watched them, I believe, like he triggered a few things with his feet. He had those big kind of like organ pedals at his feet too. I also remember at that point too, Neil Peart was doing a lot of electronic drums. Like he did that whole jazz drum solo, where it's like he was a full jazz band on his drums. Yeah, that? so he had like yeah. uh, samples and stuff, and you know, electronic pads that he was triggering some stuff with. I don't think back in this like Hemispheres no. era he was doing no. that, but later on, especially once they got to like the '80s and the more electronic stuff, like some of that came in too. So with that with that chord, what uh, so what kind of effect does it have? I mean, I am not as musically versed as you, but when I hear it, I sort of get this sense of openness, and I get this sense of kind of I feel like a spirit of Rush's like adventure, yeah. right? Even in Cygnus, it feels open, like you're about to explore something new. Well, there is an openness. Effect. There's an openness to it because you have those. chorus sound that's too much <laughs> so you have that openness of those ringing strings you also have some dissonance like that's Ooh. inside the chord is it half yeah, when you play it together it sounds horrible. yeah and that's one of the thing about those two that's notes. one thing about dissonance in general is like sometimes you know notes like you know notes that sound terrible if put in context 
of a full oh, chord yeah. can sound good, right? And that's kind of the deal here is like, like when I play the full chord, you don't get that. That is crazy. So it's kind of like happening inside the chord is that dissonance. Some of these other chords, they have dissonance too, right? Or Wow. There's a half step in this one. Uh, uh, so, sounds so nice, well together. That or, or sad. even this one that happens later in Cygnus. Right. So dissonance can be really good if it's done, you know, in the right place or done within the context of a bigger chord. So, but yeah, well, that chord. I, I guess from my perspective is when I hear that. I mean, I don't totally understand the music theory aspect except for what you're explaining right now. But the impact it has on the story of the song, like it, it captures the vibe of the actual song of like of, of aspects of like floating through space it does, or yeah. like encountering these civilizations, Apollonian Dionysian civilizations that, you know, it really captures that. It feels kind of spacey and, and epic yeah. in its own kind of way, just with one chord. And so this chord comes back like a bunch of times in a bunch of transition areas within the song. Um, mm-hmm. And actually like later on they do like when the groove starts, this same chord is still going. Once again, more of the, it's the same type of chords, like these big ringing chords, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think something like that. Um, anyway, yeah. So and you 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 said also this is the first album where they are fiddling with the foot keyboard, right? Oh, I don't know is if this, this is the first album, okay. but it's definitely they're doing it on this. I think they were doing it before, but there seems yeah. to be a little more keyboard on this than twenty one twelve, right? Like. Maybe not a ton more, but there is more. And there's kind of like specific sections, especially like uh, we'll talk about it in the other songs, but there's like bridge sections of songs where like there's tons of keyboards or like even the weird spacey part in Cygnus that that has a lot of the like orchestration and stuff. Yeah. Um, and this song is this, this is longer than La Villa Strangiano, right? It's eight, this is 18 minutes long. Yeah, yeah this is minutes 18 longer. minutes. And then it has a ten-minute section on "Farewell to Kings." So together, it's like a twenty. It's like a. I, I think this song. is the second longest Rush song outside of twenty-one twelve. I could be wrong, but wow! So this is a. I mean, this is a big one. This is like yeah. This would have taken up like so a whole side of yes. A this was record. the entire first side yeah. of the album. It's really right. what half the it's half a half of the album essentially. Right. Um, so it's like a bunch of song. You know, it's all a bunch of songs all in one. It's pretty much. Yeah, uh, and I think I think this song, story-wise, embodies the. Well, they all kind of embody the hemisphere aspect, but I don't know. Lyr- lyrically, I love I love the story that they tell in this, and I think like with that chord, like I said, it kind of captures that spirit of, a, of adventure. I yeah. guess the only thing I can think of, but like the last lyrics, like we can walk our road together if our goals are the, are the same. We can run alone and free if we if we pursue a different aim. Let the truth of love be lighted. Let the love of truth shine clear. So I like that, that it's the truth of love showing that Apollo is truth and and love is a true thing, but then also the love of truth is more Dionysian, yeah. right? Um, I do like for, that yeah. Rush has this kind of uplifting element to their sound. To too. their lyrics or to their sound? Both. Or both. Because yeah. it happens yeah. in both. I mean, a lot of Rush songs is, you know, is as weird as it seems in Prague, it's like a lot of it is major ish kind of things. Yeah. Right. Things like uh, closer to the heart. I grabbed a different pick than the one that's in my guitar. Um, 
Or even like that that first chord. That's really like a major chord. I mean, it's suspended. Yeah, but it's a major chord, and like this entire song ends on a big A major chord. So there is kind of like a more uplifting element to their sound, but it's I also too. If that if that's why maybe they they weren't as successful in the United States. Like this album, I can't remember the numbers, but I know that in the UK and Canada, what was it? it was number fourteen in Canada and UK. It was number 41 in the United States. And I wonder, you know, it, it seems like United States sort of culture, uh, it gravitates more around the, um, I, I don't want to say violence, but you know, the dark <laughs> aspects, Maybe. like, 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 um, clockwork orange, the book clockwork yeah. orange, I'm reading that right now and clockwork orange. They left off the last chapter when they released in the United States. And in the book is about like teenagers pursuing violence and things like that. And they released that in the United States, but the last chapter is like him redeeming himself. And they just like left that off. They're like, no, everything's just really dark and depressing. And that's the end. <laughs> um, but I wonder if that sort of attitude is what makes rush a uh, less uh, palatable well, to to american audiences at least back in in the 80s and maybe it yeah. also could have been at this time that the the whole early prog rock thing that kind of happened in the uk so maybe they were more open to these sort of epic prog things than you know someone in the u.s would be i'm not sure about that and obviously mm -hmm. canada they're from canada so they would do better in canada i would imagine and and even general. peak floyd you know has kind of a cynicism to oh, their yeah. lyrics that i think americans even though it's british you know they jive with yeah there is the i mean we, pink yeah. floyd um, and king crimson too as far as the ones we've talked about so far definitely much darker you know in yeah tone um i kind of think of rush as like yes meets led zeppelin <laughs> i don't know if that's a good yeah. A good description. Well, their early, their early stuff is very Led Zeppelin. Oh yeah, -esque. and there yeah. is still a lot of that, and that's that's another thing I really like about Rush is like they have, they seem like a lot more of a rock band in the truest sense than some of the earlier prog bands. Yes, like yes. their riffs are rocking. Like some of these stuff is complex, but like you know, circumstances or something like that. And it's like you know, it's a great riff. Just <laughs> You know, these big open chords mm -hmm. and power chords and stuff. So, and more aggressive. Yeah, than, it's it's yeah. very aggressive, but also as I mentioned, it has kind of like a a lighter element to it in spots. So you kind of get a right, good right. a good balance of both. But Rush, they kind of live in a weird realm between. I, I always viewed Rush as kind of the bridge between the early prog rock and then what eventually turns into progressive metal. But yeah, kind of they don't really and yeah, because they're a little bit after like. Uh, Genesis and Yes and all that so they don't really fit in with that exactly but the influence is definitely there but then they're not heavy enough really to be like you know Queensryche or Dream Theater or anything like that so yeah they kind of occupy a weird space in the middle but, yeah but no that's definitely accurate one thing about Rush is they are a musician's band like most musicians across all kinds of genres love Rush so there's this really awesome documentary uh, I think we watched it together at one point, yeah, but made yeah, by yeah. Sam Dunn. It was about 10 years ago called Beyond the Lighted Stage. It's a big, it just goes through the entire history of Russian. He interviews the guys throughout and they show, they show him where they grew up and where they met and all this different kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and in that documentary, there has a bunch of musicians that come on to talk about Rush. So there's, but there's all sorts of people. There's the creators of South Park. There's Jack Black. Uh, you yep. know, Mike Portnoy, Kirk Hammett from Metallica, like just all and, and over Prime, the board. Les Claypool from Primus. Les from Primus. Is, There's yeah. all kinds of people in that documentary. It just shows how much musicians really appreciate Rush. 
Yeah. So they kind of like never really got mainstream success, like we would think of mainstream success. But they their legacy like in, endured, and they were able to fill out stadiums for their entire career, pretty much. So it's like the yeah, most- and that's the thing. Like why why it took so long for them to get inducted into the Hall of Fame is that uh, what 2013 they were that's inducted crazy. into the Hall of Fame, uh, and and it's it, it is because they don't have that sort of as much of a pop sensibility, and they're doing their own thing, and they don't care what other people think about them. Yeah, but at the same Generally. time, like even the show we went to is like tens of thousands of people there like it's like the biggest underground band band ever <laughs> pretty much yeah 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 so i don't was there anything on cygnus you wanted to talk about i mean there's all I mean, this song is dense there's all kinds of stuff yeah. i'm trying to think musically let's see i've got a bunch of notes i mean it's structured in a spe- specific way that addresses different like story arcs of the song yeah so your um, first your first movement or the first part there's no vocals, right? That's kind of like your prelude uh, overture introduction. And a lot of the musical ideas that happen when the vocals do come in, they get introduced in that intro section. A lot of the riffs and rhythms and chords and all that. Um, and then later, Getty's singing over the top of them. Now, there is a thing that happens uh, throughout this song. It happens in a couple of the other songs, too, on this album. Um, and this this idea of going between compound meter and simple meters. And what that really means is things where you have like an eighth traditional eighth note feel and then something that has like a three note per beat feel or like a triplet feel. So the yeah. Yeah, and then other parts of the song. One, two, and three, one, and two, and three, and four. Right? So you kinda like go yeah. between that and uh, which movement is it? I believe it's four. Yeah, in movement part four of this piece, the that the kind of Armageddon. Yeah, that kind yeah. of triplet feel completely takes over at that point. It's just kind of like hinted at before that. Um, right. So they're kind of moving between back and forth between those two feels a lot in the song, which is cool. Do we have timestamps? I was gonna play so that that this so is the Armageddon part that you're talking about is that battle of heart and mind where it's like the the war between Apollo and Dionysus. Yeah, that's somewhere right? about eight and a half minutes ish. I have some timestamps here, but yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So then, and so that kind of captures, there's some kind of chaotic element to the music to capture that battle. Yeah. Yeah. And the chords are kind of a little, they're a little more, even more dissonant in, in that part. Uh, Mm -hmm. what are the words there? Yeah. So there's more of that distance. Right. right, and that kind of happens through, through all that. And there's some odd time signatures there as well. Um, I mean, there, there's a number of cool odd time signatures through this song. Um, I actually have a whole video I did almost a year ago now on Rush's odd time signatures. I talked about circumstances in La Villa Strangiata in that video. Um, but Rush is really good about using odd time signatures in a musical way, like the way they can kind of weave between them and not make them feel weird is yeah is really good it's more natural yeah it's yeah. very natural um and that's kind of like what i prefer you know sometimes it's cool just to do crazy odd time signatures but if you can have them make sense and, and groove then it works well like one of my favorite parts is this whole riff so this is in four four and then 
that's in 7-8. And like the shifting feel there really works with the lyrics and the kind of overall feel of the music. And it's not so much about the odd time signature as it is about that 7-8 feeling more energetic in, you know, right. than, in, than the 4-4 in that particular part. And that's so. during the part that's like the universe divided is the heart and mind collided the people left unguided. And oh, it talks no, about you're they saying fought you... amongst themselves. Is that, that's not in four, right? Or no, is that, is that part you're, that's the part that's in, that's in the, the triplet feel or the 12, eight. Okay. Feel. Okay. I was, do, there's a lot of the part I just played happens with a bunch of different lyrics, um, throughout mm-hmm. the song. I'm trying to remember. I bring laughter. I bring music. I bring joy and I bring tears. I will soothe your primal fear. Oh, so that's just like at the beginning. Part. You're talking about kind of the beginning, or or well, that's well, later. The third part. Third part. Yeah, that part happens. That particular riff I just played happens a number of times through the song, but it's more this right. idea of of using the odd time signature as just a way to kind of uh, change up the feel in a particular section, you know? Right. Um, and yes. If you listen close, like I obviously don't have time to like talk about all the little things, but there's all sorts of little musical elements that happen and then happen again in a different way later in the song or like it cut short later or like one part will get expanded upon later. Like, so there's all these little musical motifs, which is motifs is like a short musical phrase. There's all these little things that keep happening over and over again throughout the song. Um, like, and that also happened in Cygnus one. Correct. Yeah. Right? There's some yeah. things that happen in Cygnus one. <laughs> there's some transition chords, uh, like even the chords that happen at the, during the big ending part, you will call you Cygnus, the God of balance, right? Those chords right. actually happen way back at the beginning of the song without any vocals. So mm-hmm. it's like that kind of stuff, which is cool to me because it ties the whole piece together. Yeah. And I mean, in the beginning is about Cygnus, like entering into Olympus. Right. Yeah. And then this is talking about Cygnus ends up being the peace bringer uh, yep. between Apollo and Dionysius. Yeah. So, and it has that weird part. What do you think of the weird part in the middle? Like 1230, I think. Tw- uh, I it re- just has like random samples kind of happening and floating around in stereo. And I really and, like it actually. And like, I think those yeah. like really dark, like, like swelling yeah. keyboard chords that come in is really cool. It kind of breaks up the song because really you have like nine minutes of just like riffing, for, for, yeah. you know, and like and rocking. So it's cool to kind of break it up and then it kicks back in. Um, yeah. And there's some big, like it's all, well, when he's singing in the bridge part, it's like these big, big swelling, like major chords, you know, kind of happening. Um, so it's cool. And I think maybe that's the, there's one part in 2112 I'm not a huge fan of where it kind of like breaks down and it like sounds like a guitar tuning and stuff. Like I, I understand why it's there, but I don't know this, this middle section works better for me as far as yeah. like a long song goes. Um, and it, and it brings that, that element of kind of the hope hopefulness that you, that you were talking about yeah. too. I mean, with the lyrics here, it's very like quiet. It's very, um, hopeful. I already mentioned the lyrics of like truth of love and love of truth. Um, but then it like ends with that armed with a sense of liberty with the heart and mind united in a single perfect sphere. Yeah. It does. The that. two hemispheres are connected. Does yeah. that like acoustic ending part, which is cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, a great song overall. It's probably, probably one of my, I don't know if I had to rank rush songs, it'd probably be in the top 10. Oh, it's great. For yeah. me. Um, so maybe we should move on to yeah, circumstances. circumstances. Um, circumstances to me, I mean, well, again, it, there's this theme of separation in the lyrics. Uh, the separation is different though. Uh, it's not as like, uh, it's not about Olympus or anything. It's just about, uh, Neil Pert. He at the, it, he was reflecting on his time that he lived in England and his disillusionment with his 
then current occupation and how he like aspired to something else. There's a separation between his aspirational self and who he actually was in, in the song. Um, but initially, like for me, the big thing with circumstances is it sounds like something off moving pictures, Yeah, you know, it's not, it's, it's shorter and it just, it's, it's more radio friendly, I guess you would say, uh, somewhat. And it's more straightforward than, than other songs on this album, except yeah. trees. Trees is fairly straightforward, but it's kind of headed towards that sound that they moved to with permanent waves and moving pictures. Um, yeah. It's not quite all the way there because there's not maybe as much keyboard, you know, as you would have in some right. of the later stuff. I mean, if you think about, like, what happens on Permanent Ways. I mean, that's considerably more kind of uplifting than something like Circumstances. Right. Um, but it is definitely more in that realm because it's shorter. It's kind of like... But what's cool is they still have a lot of the Rush kind of ideas here. There's some interesting rhythms. You have that whole bridge part which kind of goes to a completely different place mm-hmm. but they're doing it within a really compact like pop song form pretty much which is kind of what they end up doing a late a lot later you know as they move forward um, but they're still injecting plenty of prog elements oh yeah this, like even the, the so chorus of this yeah. the chorus of this song has a really weird rhythm right it's kind of going between yeah, four four and two four i think there's actually a seven eight measure in there and there's like these seven eight transition bars <laughs> Right, so there's shifting meters kind of all through that stuff. Right. Um, but it sounds cool, you know, and it's not like it sounds weird or anything like that, but... Uh, yeah. And then the whole bridge part just goes between 5, 8, and 6, 8, kind of like back and forth a bit. Um, and it has like the bells and uh, it yeah. sounds very whimsical. Yeah, so they kind <laughs> the of in, in, inject, and this happens in trees too, but they kind of inject a little bit of that... Uh, uh, in parts, they inject some of that folky element that we talked about with, especially King with King Crimson, with King and, Crimson, and stuff. Yeah, which is like yeah, like fairies floating around in the forest, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. You know, like those keyboard yeah. parts, and, yeah, and, and yeah, like yeah. the like low part, and then the little bells, like all that kind of stuff. And that's um, what I, I think. As a average American listener listens to that, they're they're. I think a lot of them would be turned off by that sound, Maybe. that specific sound. I don't know. I'm making a huge generalization, but <laughs> Americans but I guess are so what stupid. I mean is Americans just want, well, <laughs> part of it is a lot of really experimental music didn't gain the popularity in the America that it gained in yeah, Canada yeah. or the UK. I think, uh, and Rush is a great example. Of that. I think for me, one of the reasons that Rush was one of the first prog bands that I really latched onto was because this stuff isn't, the main focus you know anymore isn't like the only thing happening like in a song like this most of the song is like riffs you know and and cool rocking parts and then they do that in one part part and it feels interesting experimental but then it's like back to the rocking whereas if you listen to some early king crimson or genesis it's like you'll have like an entire song that's just all like folky whimsical the whole stuff. album is fairies yeah. like all the way through <laughs> no yeah, no yeah. and i but <laughs> like now i really like that stuff but when i was yeah. younger like that didn't do as much for me you know <laughs> no it didn't it didn't work for me either and that was one of the things yeah that turned me off from the band initially i think it, it rush even yeah yeah it was vocals and, and 
And also the complexity, because I just didn't understand it. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. I, I was I like, I didn't understand what they're trying to do. I was like, why does this sound so different and weird? That was my initial reaction as like a fifteen-year-old kid. Yeah, to it. And I wouldn't recommend that if someone hasn't listened to Rush and they don't listen to this kind of music. I wouldn't recommend that you start with Hemispheres. Heck no, no. It, you, It'd be moving. Pictures. Start with moving pictures. Listen to Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. Listen to Limelight. You'll get those elements, but in yeah, more of a I guess accessible way it'll inoculate you yeah, to the exactly. two hemispheres because so yeah. i mean i didn't i didn't appreciate this album uh or farewell to kings until got well probably since i met you like within the last yeah, 10 yeah. years I, I would say i started to appreciate these albums more farewell to kings yeah. is the best rush lyric of all time but oh right right i forgot about that <laughs> yeah this this i mean circumstances again pretty straightforward uh, I, I'm trying to think of anything notable lyric wise. It's it's only I think it's the only song that has French words in it. Oh, and uh, I got in the Russian. Unless here. the ship, what's the ship called in Cygnus? Ross Ross Ros- the Rosinante. Yeah, that's that's actually Spanish. That's so Spanish doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, yeah there so are a couple lines of uh, French in here. I didn't like, realize that. Yeah, place la même. I can't speak French <laughs> at all. I don't know why high schools they have French class and I got to be in it. And I don't know how to speak French, so I don't know what they were assessing exactly. Well, they just wanted they to get you out of. Grade. They wanted to get you out of their class. I think <laughs> get, out of here. get this guy Never out of here. Just give back. him a B. It'll be fine. <laughs> um. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Is there anything else you want to talk about on that one? No, not really. Not too much to yeah, talk about. It's pretty I mean, straightforward song. It's a. It's a trees good... though. Oh, uh. Yes. Lyrically, I mean, so so as far as hit songs go, circumstances and trees were the hit songs that were played on the radio, yeah. right? Um, I think La Villa Strangiato had like a music video though that they played live and then like that was broadcast like in the UK or okay. something. But the, these songs, Circumstances and Trees were their hit songs. I remember Trees, the first time I listened to it was I played Rock Band. Okay. <laughs> and I remember it was on Rock Band. But this song is interesting because to me, because of the controversial message yeah. uh, of the of the Trees, um, so what's interesting about the song is it basically reflects, um, Neil Peart's kind of obsession with Ayn Rand, at mm-hmm. least this time. I mean, they're, they're recording, you know, company is called Anthem records, which is named after Ayn Rand. And for those of you who don't know who Ayn Rand is, Ayn Rand is sort of like a, and, and I also want to preface this is I'm going to be as, uh, objective or philosophy's <laughs> objectivism in analyzing Ayn Rand without injecting my own personal political beliefs into this uh but ayn rand was is basically like a, a libertarian sort of godmother yeah uh and she had this philosophy called objectivism she wrote books such as anthem the fountainhead and atlas shrugged and all of these books kind of have this similar kind of dystopian sort of theme to them um and this dystopian theme usually has to do with uh the importance of individualism and the problems of uh, communism or communitarianism. And this has to do with Ayn Rand being a, um, being from Russia, she was disillusioned with the communist system. And so her books were all very hyper individualistic. Um, So Neil Peart was heavily influenced by this. There's lots of other songs, but I feel like this song specifically captures this idea of um, the problems of like communism. And what you have is literally a proletariat and bourgeoisie 
uh, you have the lower class of the maples and then the higher class of the oaks, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And they're mad. They're mad that the oaks swallow up all the sunlight. And they're like, we should get some of that sunlight. You know, we should get some of this, you know, money, so to speak, or or services or goods or opportunity that they're all getting. Yeah. Uh, and then in the end, they they fight for rights. Um, I, shoot, what's the actual lyric? The The, the maples... I've got them up here. Demanded Please. equal rights. They formed a union and demanded equal rights. They formed rights. a union and demanded equal rights. And in this song, at least from my perspective, is it kind of pokes, uh, I'm looking at 21 Pilots Trees lyrics. That's what happens when you search things into Google. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Maples formed a union. They demanded equal rights. They say the Oaks are just too greedy and will make them give us light. And then the solution is that the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. Uh, and the idea that if you're pursuing equality, it means- uh, Everyone gets brought you down. Can't, everybody is exactly the same. Uh, and it, and it, it, yeah, everybody's equal, but it's it's not a good outcome that you want. I think some common modern critics of this would be like, say, Jordan Peterson, or I think also Kurt Vonnegut has that story um, where all the, the beautiful people have to wear masks because their beauty is like oppressive to the ugly people. Yeah, yeah. And then all the strong people have to wear weights because they, they it's not fair that they're too strong. Yeah, and yeah. so so this song really captures that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so for, for me, I mean, obviously, you, sometimes you can't avoid political things if they come up in songs. It's like, as a fan of Rush, I just think of this kind of stuff uh I think that this was the inspiration that that Neil Piet Neil Piet needed for <laughs> for to write songs, right? I mean, because you want to write about things that you're interested in and you're you're reading about. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm not even sure. I, I would probably imagine that Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson probably didn't really believe this stuff like that heavily. Maybe they did. I don't know. Well, so that's what's really interesting. I think you might. I sent you a picture. I'm not sure if you have it, but at this time, this is when Neil Peart was way into Ayn Rand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, later in his life, he was not as much. Um, but there was an article that came out that was called "Is Everybody Feeling All Right." And the emphasis on right, it's all capital. Yeah, yeah. Because it's saying that Rush was like this right-wing fascist okay. band. And so this was a smear piece written by uh, Barry Miles of New Music Express in 1978. Okay. And he really spent a lot of time in this article, and you can find it online, read it in Rush forums, uh, where Neil Pert like opened up. And uh, he said he, he really opened up this guy because he thought he was like his friend. And he said he was very transparent in yeah, these yeah. interviews and express like his love for Ayn Rand and his criticisms of socialism and criticisms of uh, British politics at that time. Uh, one quote that he has uh, is, we're certainly devoted to individualism as the only concept that allows men to be happy without somebody taking from somebody else. The thing for me about Ayn Rand is that her philosophy is the only one applicable to the world today in every sense. If you take her ideas, then take them farther in your own mind, you can find answers to pretty well everything on an individual basis. Putting the individual as the first priority, everything could be made to work in a way that it can never be made to work under any other system. <laughs> and this guy really rakes him through the coals. He, he, he compares him... To, he, he compares it to like the, the Auschwitz sign, the like work makes everyone free. Uh, and, and he says they're nice guys and they're not terrible, but that they're, they're, they're peddling this proto 
fascism okay. and they and they're just naive about it but if it back to your what you were saying is getty lee and alex lifeson are like yeah and rand's kind of cool but they weren't really as invested as neil pert because he's doing the i, I think the writing. deal with with them was like they couldn't write they didn't write as good of lyrics so they're yeah. like we're just gonna let neil do it and we'll just play yep. the music like that at least that's yep. i don't know i'm not them so i can't speak for their political beliefs but i can yeah. imagine that's that's probably the case <laughs> Yeah, you know. but the the funny part about this article, and I recommend everybody should listen to it, is that later, all the interviews with Neil Peart about his lyrics, he gives just like superficial answers to everything. Because he doesn't want to like, get raked over so the coals. Burned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was so burned for expressing his, his, his views. And the thing is, Ayn Rand, if you read it, I mean, it's definitely uh, right of center, you know? Yeah, but yeah. it also offers some interesting criticisms, interesting thoughts about how we view society. Yeah. I don't know that- but it's funny- well, well, the, the the interview he gets interviewed again, and he said, and, and this guy's like, "Hey, is there any deeper meaning to trees?" And Neil Per he says, "Nope." <laughs> and this is a direct quote. He says, "It was just a flash. I was working on an entirely different thing when I saw a cartoon picture of these trees carrying on like fools, and I thought, what if trees act like people? So it's really a cartoon, really. And I wrote it that way. I think it's an image that conjures up to a listener or a reader. It's a very simple statement." So he says it's based like a cartoon oh, that's funny. and he completely ignores the like very clear themes of, of the problems yeah. of equality, which is and what I the song is about. Knowing all that, if you look at Rush lyrics after this, that I think he kind of like comes back. He doesn't go quite as hard on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Know, in later I'm trying albums. to think of later. Yeah. What is a later album? I mean, they have Anthem. They literally have Anthem, yeah. which is an Ayn Rand book. But there's, you know, songs like limelight or tom sawyer like those things don't really deal with this like at least to this sort of extreme no and i i mean he was even later he was interviewed and his impression of this article was that he said it was a very dishonest article i was under the impression that miles and i had gotten on very well i even gave him my address in new york and told him to stop by anytime he's in the neighborhood and that so-called political dialogue took place after the interview had finished and we were just chatting really amenably I thought, and he twisted it all around, and I feel like it was basically dishonest. Mm. Well, that's um, unfortunate. So, yeah. I mean, but the thing is, like, I'm trying to think if this was to happen, if someone, a band was to release a song like this today, oh my, gosh, literally yeah. the exact same thing would happen. You'd have some, yeah. some journalist come up and be like, "This person's a Nazi," <laughs> and then yeah. that person would be like, "No, no," blah, and then you get, like, you have the exact same controversy. No, so, it's funny. They're like canceled before canceling yeah, yeah. was cool. You know, they're canceled back in 1978. <laughs> Rush got canceled article. first. No, yeah. They're, uh, it's interesting. But they're always viewed as weird. You know, they're playing yeah. with a lot of bands, like when they toured with Kiss, and Kiss yeah. is like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and, just like, and Rush, like, we're going to go play D&D up in our hotel room or something. You know, they what would I mean? just like, write songs in their hotel room <laughs> while Kiss was running around with models. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is so back to the Ayn Rand thing. This is the last kind of comment on it uh, is later on, you know, more right-leaning politicians like um, Rand Paul, who's literally named after Ayn Rand, yeah, yeah, uh, would like play Rush songs as they came out on stage, and Neil Peart hated that, yeah, and he didn't like that his message was associated with American politicians yeah. like that. So I think that shows just kind of how he evolved politically, yeah, maybe. and that this was kind of just a stage in his life. Yeah. And he was at a point where they emphasized the importance of free will and individualism. And also like Ayn Rand characters are typically these people like in the fountainhead 
where there's an architect who wants to build something beautiful, but the society wants to tear it down and make it very, make buildings that are all generic to make more money. Yeah. And so Rush, I feel like really captures that idea of they're doing their own thing. And it, and so in like a positive spin on Ayn Rand, they were, they were doing their own thing. They're being individuals and not caving into what the consumer culture wanted. Yeah, I and guess. I can imagine as a musician, like, like he's got a, you know, he's got his beliefs and stuff, but I don't think that he wanted to be overtly political, like to be used by politicians, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, I, I think most musicians are typically usually against, you know, politicians playing their songs before they get on stage or whatever, like, because yeah. most musicians, I mean, there probably are some, but most musicians are like, you know, this is my art, like it's, you know, separate from, from like whatever politician, you know, who who wants well, to just it, use the lyrics for like some sort of message they have, so... Well, the classic one is like Ronald Reagan played Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen when he came out on stage. Yeah. And Bruce Springsteen completely hated Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. Like vehemently, you know. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that kind of stuff yeah. happens all the time. It still happens today. But Yeah. So, I don't know. Like musically, is there anything in... So, trees? I mean, there's some interesting like stuff in here. Time. There's some more of that kind of whimsical uh, stuff, and especially in the middle. But there's this awesome like wood block, like run thing that happens yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah. And I really like the five four part in the middle. I played it a little bit earlier that like where's the clean picking part and like the groove right. that happens. This is probably my least favorite song from a musical perspective on the yeah. album. Um like it's fine. You know the me- the main melodies and stuff don't really do that much for me. Um but it's it's obviously good, and there's there's plenty of, of fun stuff in here, lots of really cool uh, bass and drum stuff too, especially like under that solo in the middle. Uh, and that's one thing about Rush in general, and this is probably one of the reasons that you like them, and why lots of people like them is they have a really groovy element to their yes. to their music. Like uh, yeah. Getty and Neil are like an awesome rhythm section, you know, and oh, some of the I, stuff yeah. that's happening like underneath solos or underneath riffs is like. Super groovy, and we'll kind of deal more a little bit with that more in La Villa Strangiata too. But um, it it is an element of Rush that kind of uh, a more like a non musician would really appreciate, right? Like if you listen yeah. to Tom Sawyer or something, like there's an infectious kind of groove to it because I mean Neil is just a ridiculous drummer, obviously, who has like a really good sense of time and groove. Um, and yeah. at this point, they weren't playing with a metronome or anything, so there's a little bit of that sort of free looseness to it as well. So. Yeah, no, I, uh, I definitely, that is one of the, I love listening to the rhythm section of this. I, Alex Lifeson, I don't think gets the credit. No, due, definitely not. But as a bass player, I'm usually listening for what Getty Lee and Neil Perder. Like if you listen sure. to, if you just <laughs> focus on the drums and bass, like Getty is, he's a very busy bass player. Cause he kind of has to be in a three piece, but he's doing all kinds of stuff like all over the yeah. place. You listen to be like, Whoa, that's insane. It's like, you know, he's just doing like a big run. Yeah. Or something. And his tone is and his so, tone is great. So good. And it yeah, all just yeah. locks in. Then you realize he's also singing at the same time. You're like, this guy's ridiculous. <laughs> and playing keyboard and playing feet, keyboards you know? with his feet and moving the mic with his big nose. And he's doing the Rickenbacker. And the, the, I, I don't know if he, that's what he's, I don't know. If it was, yeah. Maybe at this point, um, then he kind of moved to the jazz, the jazz yeah so thing. actually he dropped it in 83 okay. so yeah he's on the Rick he's Rick on Walker, the Rick but... Walker, yeah all right so la villa stringiata the last song on the album yeah really quick on trees though okay uh i just want to make sure that we're keeping with our theme so this album as i said is called hemispheres uh trees the obvious split 
is between the maples and the oaks, right? So there's always like a split in each song. That's all I wanted to say. Um, but yeah, La Villa Strangiato, as far as the hemispheres, I think that it, me personally, I interpret this as this was one of Alex Lifeson's uh, dreams that he had, right? Uh, he even unconsciously picks up uh, a lick from Powerhouse, which you may remember from Looney Tunes cartoons <laughs> on Saturday mornings. Can you play that, that sweet Acme Factory uh, song? Yeah. Yeah. So he played, he actually played that and he didn't, according to legend, according to Rush Forums. So this isn't a good, but mm. he unconsciously put that lick in the song. Okay. And he didn't know that he was stealing it I mean, from it's very possible. Powerhouse. It is possible. Kind of like uh, But then when they found out, they ended up giving uh, the creator of Powerhouse uh, royalties okay. for well, that lick. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. this is an instrumental, obviously. So no lyrics to talk about. I think it's cool to end an album with a big, long instrumental. It's pretty like, kind of like yeah. a, we're just going to do it whatever we want kind of a thing. Yeah. But this has always been my favorite Russian instrumental. Not that there's a ton of them, but like everyone loves YYZ, right? Or talks about YYZ. Right. This one to me is even better. It just flows better and it's some really cool parts to it. And it's super over the top, obviously. Um, and this is like a prototypical song that a lot of your sort of prog metal bands that do the crazy instrumental stuff. Like, I think this is an important song for that kind of like going forward. Um, just the absolutely insane playing and lots of changes all over the place. Um, but you kind of have that opening section, the which goes forever with all there's more like bells and tinkly stuff you know happening yeah and like all that stuff that kind of happens in the background yeah the the zaniness yeah yep. yeah and it goes on for a really long time like maybe like just long enough like it's long enough you're like when it's gonna happen but then it kind of kicks into the riff um yeah then you have this the groove that enters kind of this main section it's kind of like a a clave rhythm which is a very common rhythm in like Latin music, which is it's weird because isn't La Villa Strangiato is an actual place in Italy? Yeah, but it has a more of a Latin. It's kind of yeah, that's kind of a classic. You know, it's not exactly a clave rhythm, but it's close. So it kind of has that kind of groovy element to it in that it does feel like you're on you're on the Mediterranean, but you've just consumed hallucinogens. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're in Spain. A nightmare Mediterranean sort of vibe. And this it, kind of yeah. like uh, is a real highlight of one of Neil Peart's best elements of his playing, which is his hi-hat work. Like mm-hmm. if you listen to a lot of his riffs and stuff, like he's always doing really cool hi-hat stuff. And he's so. credited on this. I don't – he's credited on this as writing the actual song. Okay. Uh, I'm sure they work together. Yeah, um, and I know they stuff. did, but I think this song specifically is, it, well, according to Song Facts, it's one of the few songs in which drummer Neil Peart is credited with writing the music oh, instead of just the lyrics. Interesting. Yeah. And and obviously they had a very collaborative sort of writing process in general with everything. So I'm sure that the other members were involved too, but maybe it is mostly Neil's contributions. I could see that with some of the grooves and stuff that are happening. Yeah. Um, And there's the like the main riff which is like it's a great rocking riff you just you just pull off to open strings yeah right yeah yeah and then you have the 
Which is, it's cool. It's like a C major. F sharp. It's like okay. a tritone move. Kind of like a weird dark right. sounding thing. But then again, it's that major kind of sound too, because this main riff, it's like an A, that's an A major chord. Um, and then that, that repeats a few times with that melody. There's some really cool like drum fills, especially into the... Like all the way down yeah. the road, Otoms, you know, all the way through there. And then it kind of has that really long guitar solo, um, which is in 7 8. It's kind of like the most common 7 8 rhythm. Um, and I talked about this in my my video on Rush that I did, but it's uh, two groups of two and then one group of three. So it's one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. Right. So it's like one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. And that kind of happens through the entirety of the solo and then into the section, the riff that happens after the solo. Um, and I haven't really talked about Alex Lifeson's solos very much. Like I talked about his chord playing. Um, yeah. And I think he's very underrated as a guitarist in general. But a lot of Alex Lifeson's solos, I'm not personally a huge fan of. Oh, really? Um, okay. This one, why, on the other why hand. exactly? So what is it about it that... This one, on the other hand, is my favorite. Oh, okay. Alex Lifeson solo, and I think it builds really well and goes a lot of places. So Alex Lifeson, when lead playing wise, took a lot from someone like Jimmy Page, right? And <laughs> and my problems as a modern guitarist with modern sensibilities and stuff is like there's a sloppiness to to it, especially okay. the fast playing. So is a lot, this, of, but this one's not as sloppy though. Well, I mean, on... there is a little bit of that, but I really like the way that this one flows overall and makes sense. But like you know, a lot of times. Uh, and this would happen with Jimmy Page too. It's kind of like, um, like I'm not, you know, Alex would would kind of move his fingers and then pick fast. You know what I mean? But it's not like completely in sync, like mm -hmm. you like like we're gonna see with some more of the like later you know progressive metal bands and stuff. Um, and by in sync, do you mean? I mean, he's just not hitting the note perfectly well right? yeah uh, so i mean like if you if, note is not if, if you pick fast and jimmy pages is kind of too like like sloppy like blues playing kind of thing hear the, yeah you know what i mean um and not that i not that i necessarily okay. want like inhuman precision all the time but yeah. like i kind of like the marriage of slower melodic things and then when you go into a run to have it be like laser tight right so if you yeah. listen to a drum by a uh, drum fill by neil pert they're perfect, you know, 16th notes, bam, bam, right down yeah. the run. But if, like, Alex Lifeson did a 16th note run in his solo, it wouldn't be as clean. Yeah, it's more of the context. Like, Jimmy Page yeah. on Led Zeppelin, it's like, oh, he's just having a good time. Uh, this, though, sort of has this context of, per of perfection. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, but the amount of time they took to make this song, how much work they put in this song... Uh, or uh, all their songs, you'd have that expectation, yeah. and it's not there. But it's also the not to say that Alex Lifeson doesn't have awesome solos because I love the solo from Limelight. We played that mm -hmm. in a cover band, yep. and that was super yep. fun to play. Really good, flows really well. I love this solo. Uh, the solo from Free Will is good. Like, so there's, he has a lot of great solos. It's just like sometimes the sloppiness does bother me, and that's just a personal preference thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but in this case, this this works really well. He's got a long time to kind of build his solo, and he does a lot of cool things. You know, there's a lot of kind of like the. <laughs> Like the volume swell kind of stuff and like 
mm-hmm. like some of the bluesy kind of things as well. I, I sense a little bit of maybe a David Gilmore type inspiration for some of well, those. Well, and, and Alex Lifeson is also, he's like the impetus for this song, right? This was his yeah, nightmare yeah, yeah. that he had. Uh, yeah. So I imagine he had a pretty heavy hand in this song. Yeah, yeah. And it is definitely one of their most impressive songs. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and actually, when yeah. they went to record this, they tried to record it all in one take. Yeah. Like live, but they couldn't do it. It was too hard. Yeah. So they had to like split it into multiple parts. But they play this live though, right? I mean, it's different live though. There's this, there's an element of perfection that's required in the studio that's above right. what you do live. Because a, a live context yeah. gives you more leeway in a, in a lot of ways. Well, that's in that Billy Miles interview. One of, uh, that was his name, right? Billy Miles, the guy raked him through the coals. Part of his thing was that he, he was interviewing them about how they play and they mentioned how they didn't care about the audience, or at least that's how he framed it. Like, but that wasn't what they're saying. What they were saying was that they really cared about getting the songs right for its own sake. Yeah. For, for them, not for the audience. And it was great that the audience was there to enjoy it, but their goal was to make these songs sound really, really good live for themselves. Yeah. And and he smeared them on that. He's like, you guys don't even care about, I can't remember the exact quote, I'd have to go find it, but he's like, you guys don't even care about your audience members. It's like, no, they, they care about their craft. No, and, and that's, that's kind of what sets Rush apart, you know? That's the thing with musicians in general, like good musicians in general, is like they want to do a good job, not necessarily for other people or for the people who are watching. They want to do a good job for themselves. I mean, yeah. and I'm the same way, you know, like no one, I beat myself up so much like on everything, you know, and I think about all the mistakes I make when I play a gig, you know, and it's hard to get over that because I have a level of, of perfection that I want to hold myself to, you know, and I know that yeah, the guys in Rush would be the same way and so are so many other musicians and, and a, people who are listening to Rush, the people who are really into it, most of them are musicians or a lot of them are. So if they go to a Rush show, they want to see that stuff played well you know what i mean they don't want to like go watch rush play a level of strange and have it be a, like super sloppy or messy or not tight like they yeah. want to air drum along with the fills like played perfectly so um i think that is what their audience wants um yep and also and that's what in the interview i mean so getty says we don't expect the audience to know the standard it's purely a personal measure against past performances yeah. And then this, the, the you know, the, the interviewer, uh, Miles, he says, I complain that they seem to make no effort to put their individual personalities across to their audience mm. to show anything of themselves. Um, Unless so they're not getting, showman enough or whatever. Yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not giving a personal touch or being entertainers effectively. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he, he said, Getty says, it is all there. We're so imbued in our music and our performance that what you're seeing, I guess, is just a level of professionalism. We could, couldn't put more of ourselves into it. Are you talking about telling jokes to the audience or telling them <laughs> when our birthday is? And he like made fun of That's him and, and even left that in there. But yeah, I mean, their goal, their goal is their craft. And you don't get that, you know, in the eighties, you're not getting that from Kiss or ACDC or, you know, Bon Jo or whatever band yeah, yeah. that's out during that time. But that is exactly what makes a Rush so loved by their following and yeah. makes them such an awesome band is because they just don't give a... Yeah, and, and this goes with other medias too in movies or books or whatever, video games, whatever. If if you can tell when the people that worked on something really care about that thing. Yes. And that, to me, is better. Like if someone... 
like I don't care if they if, if someone tries to pander to me on something like that doesn't do anything for me personally mm-hmm. I'd rather have that person be really into what they're doing and put everything they have into it and then because I can feel that you know what I mean like you can feel you can feel when people fake it on yeah a lot of times on stuff or you can literally just empirically see it. I mean, with modern pop music, yeah, yeah, or it's auto tuned. It's uh, or with there's like no, nothing organic yeah. in the in the song. Or with blockbuster know, or, movies or something, you can see it. Yeah, they're just like yeah. they're just pandering. You can really see yeah. it lately. I think. Yeah, especially yeah. <laughs> Movie, mo- movies have been rough lately. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. But, but so I'd prefer if like so you're saying Space Jam 2 is not a good movie then or <laughs> I haven't watched Space Jam 2 I refuse oh, good for <laughs> you man I, I don't want to soil the original for me because I have good memories of that why well, always well you're sort of describing I don't know if we can really kind of break this down really quick but you're you're describing a sort of metaphysical quality to music that I always wonder if it's if it's actually real or if it's my own perception so like when you listen to Rush you're saying you get a sense of like authenticity and love for craft. Well, no, what I what you I, wouldn't get by listening like Katy Perry or or something like what that. What I right? feel or, is that these guys spent tons of time making this music. You can tell within the detail of everything that's going on, right? All the detail okay. of all the different parts. Um, you can hear it in his Giddy Lee's voice. You can hear it in the playing. There is uh, a personality behind what's going on. Right. Yeah. Is that because you read about it prior, or is it because did you know? No. Off and the first and I actually, listen with and it's no not context. just this kind of music. Like I feel that with even with a pop artist who, if there's a pop artist that's doing that, you know, what I mean, because they yeah. do exist. Um, you can feel when someone's re- at least for me anyway. I can tell if someone's really kind of into what they're doing. But. Yeah. When I when I went to this kind of speaks to this, and then we can kind of wrap up. But <laughs> when I went to Florence, I remember. Um, I was in Florence and I was, I hadn't seen Michelangelo's David yet, but I went to, to, uh, there's this little Palazzo and, and they have a fake David. that's exactly the same proportions. And it's where the David used to be yeah. before they moved it inside. And, uh, a, a, these Japanese tourists came through and there's a huge, like a bunch of tourists. And I, they didn't know that that wasn't the real David. Yeah. So they were outside taking pictures like, Oh my gosh, look, it's the David, you know, really excited. Yeah, yeah. And I knew, I was like, I know that's not the real David cause I know where it is. Yeah. And then when I went in to see Michelangelo's David, I walked in, I was kind of like confused a little bit. And I looked down the hallway and it was sitting at the end of the hallway. I remember being struck like emotionally by it. And so I always wonder. And then as I got closer, I was like, look at how amazing the detail, you know, that what you're describing, like, and I think I can compare rush to Michelangelo. Yeah. yeah, That's fine. Uh, And uh, I just remember being so amazed and so floored, like emotionally and maybe like spiritually. I don't know. But what's weird is to those like Japanese tourists, they saw the fake David. And I wonder if they experienced that same feeling because they thought it was David. Maybe. You know? And I, I don't know. I don't know That's if it, it, what part of its perception. Well, and, and, and obviously there's a supernatural quality to Michelangelo's David that makes it really badass yeah. like rush you know things affect people in different ways depending on what you enjoy or what you grew up with right i mean i know plenty of people especially people who are non-musicians like if i showed them rush to be like what the heck is this you know what i mean <laughs> like so like yeah. your yeah your experiences and and like what you enjoy impacts that stuff too um right. and i'm sure there's people that there's probably people that get that sort of like feeling and emotional reaction to listening to you know taylor swift or something like i'm sure they exist like and there's music Maybe out there. Too much emotion, yeah. actually. <laughs> Maybe there's there's too music... Dionysian, not enough Apollo. Yeah. I think. There's 
there's music out there for everybody and i'm and i i don't like to rag on pop music because i don't I know, think it's i don't either. i don't think it's all bad do, but... and i don't want to be a prog snob because that's definitely not what no. i am and i hate those people <laughs> for the most part like if someone's super I... snobby i'm like yeah i'm out but i was last night i was listening to childish gambino and i was yeah, enjoying, i was loving it i mean i was like this is really good i like this and it's not it's not in a seven eight time signature yeah. and it's not really complex I was, I was just enjoying it i was rocking yeah. that new bruno mars anderson pack yeah. album it was super fun yeah it was great. All that has some sick slap bass yeah there's though, some so cool there's some cool songs on there and the musicians <laughs> are good you know it doesn't matter what it is really yeah. you know and, and like obviously this kind of stuff for me being being a prog guy like there's more emotion to me to listening to rush but there's also nostalgia for me listening to rush too yeah like because i've listened to rush for you know 15 years or whatever now i you know i just think that it's really important that you got to balance those two hemispheres out you know you have this emotional reaction and you have your logical brain and you got to put them together to to figure out what's truly good music and maybe actually thinking about it maybe that's the dichotomy of rush too is you have the like the rock the heart the 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 rock in like emotion just heart the, the heart and then you've got like the the the, the logic the logical the mind, part of it too the mathematics and, and they're combining you know? and that's happening on this album so there you go wow that was really good <laughs> i really like that denouement to the whole story no i think i think what you said is true man i think that's that's real and that's what makes rush great yeah. uh amazing band one of my one of my top faves for sure yeah one of my favorites as well i'm i'm I was excited to talk about Hemisphere. Some of these albums, you know, we get to them and I'm like, eh, this album's fine or whatever. <laughs> like, I understand yeah. it's important. But but this one to me, I was like, yeah, yeah, I really like this. This would be fun. So yeah, I'm sure Rush will get talked about again at some point. Oh, yeah, we have to. Um, uh, I am Gerald Dalebout, and this is uh, Shredder Supreme, Morgan Wick. And uh, I hope you appreciate this episode. Uh, make sure to leave any comments to make sure that we um, pronounce Neil Pert's name correctly. Yeah, tell us your pronunciation of Neil. Yeah, Piet. tell us your preferred Piet. pronunciation of Neil Pert in the comments how, below. How, how French is your pronunciation? Of Neil yeah. Pert on a scale how, of one yeah, to ten. Pert, Pierre. Yeah, Pierre. Does this have a little umlaut on it? Maybe a little. <laughs> this is very German. It's Pert. <laughs> Pert. Neil Pert. Pert. Anyway, yeah. Well, uh, right. thanks for watching, guys. Um, as always, if subscribe to the channel and follow what I do, you know, if you're interested yep. more in Rush musically, I do have a couple videos. I'm, I'll link them below as well. So until next time, stay proggy. Mm-hmm.